0: You're listening to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. My name is Kamala Avila-Salmon, and I got to be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action, or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go From Woke to Work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila Salmon. The last time we talked about sympathy, the act of sharing in the sorrow of the Black community at the horrors of racism, and really feeling those feelings of sadness and regret and anger. But you already know that sympathy is not our goal. We still have a few more levels that we need to go through before we get to active, authentic, and effective anti-racism. So let's talk about why sympathy is just not enough. I think what we need to keep in mind first and foremost is that feelings alone are not action. While it is human and very important to feel things, too often I see non-Black allies getting stuck in their feelings and wanting to be congratulated for it. What this looks like is people who post things like, my heart is broken by the shooting of yet another unarmed Black man in, insert city here, hashtag Black Lives Matter. But then the next day it's back to business as usual for them. They've made no donations to racial justice organizations in their cities. They haven't called or emailed any DAs to press charges. They haven't gone to any protests. They haven't even called another white person in their circle to either share their outrage or challenge that person's views on race. They have simply felt bad, and that's it. But feelings are not meant to be a substitute for taking action. They are meant to fuel you for taking the right action. Actions informed by people in the communities that are affected, born out of a deeper understanding of our shared humanity. So today, I invited two mentors of mine. Jason White, and Imani Duncan to join me to talk about the limits of sympathy and why aspiring allies and anti-racists need to go much further than that to actually drive change. Jason is an award-winning marketing professional with a long career creating culture-shaping ideas for Fortune 100 companies. He's currently the CMO of Curaleaf, was the global head of marketing at Beats by Dre, and the managing director at White & Kennedy Shanghai before that. Amani has successfully navigated various industries from recorded music to manufacturing, often being the first female African-American woman in the role. She is now the president of BBH New York, and prior to BBH, she was the head of music at Viacom. She is also a founding member of Chief, a private network designed specifically for senior women leaders, and the host of her own podcast, No Need to Ask, where she has inspiring conversations with leading execs. Now, as marketing execs, Both Jason and Mani know the power of stories to spark awareness and elicit emotion. The tragic and unjust murders of Black people, from Trayvon Martin to Tamir Rice to Breonna Taylor to Sandra Bland, and of course George Floyd, has done a lot to build awareness of racial injustice and even elicit sympathy from non-Black people around the world. However, there is a danger that these feelings of sympathy can end up amounting to nothing unless actual action is really taken. So Jason and Amani, welcome to the show. I can't wait to get into it. How are you guys doing?
1: Hi, Kamala. Thank you for having me. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of your podcast and that you are lending your voice to amplify these issues. So I'm more than happy to lean in and I'm so happy that you asked me to be a part of this.
0: Thank you.
2: Hello, hello. How are you? Very glad to be here. Glad to be talking to both of you. And Imani, as we were just saying earlier, I can't believe we haven't met yet. So It's, it's insane. This is going to be good. <laughs>
0: we're solving problems left, right, and center on this podcast already. <laughs> That's right. All right. Let's jump right in. So I've heard people call this spring and summer a national racial reckoning or awakening. It does seem like an unprecedented number of non-Black people are finally ready to talk about race in America. And some part of that agenda for them seems to be calling their Black friends, coworkers, neighbors, people they meet on the street, to tell them just how upset they are about the tragedy of racism. So I have to ask you guys, did you get any of these check on your Black friends calls? How'd that go?
2: I'll take that one first. (laughs) Look, this is a moment where we don't want to discourage folks who are finding the voice to jump in, right? But there's also when it's when it's us talking about our experiences as a reality that we should share with one another because I think it also helps help all us do it, right? And I can tell you there were sort of two different types of responses or, or outreach that I that I felt. There was the outreach which was checking on my black friends, right? Um, checking on you. I stand with you, appalled for about what's going on, which is which is great. Like I appreciate that. I don't know that that's gonna get me anywhere. I I appreciate that. And I'm sure that makes you feel very good because you love me and you're checking on me, right? So we're good. I I get it and I appreciate it. And and at the end of the day, these people are my friends, right? So I get it. Now, the other half were the ones that were like, check in on you, hope everything's okay. By the way, I need a strategy for my brand. (laughs) And if you want to talk work and you want help, separate the two tell me you need help. You're dealing with this from a place where you're trying to reach out to the right people to get the right voice and the right point of view for your brand, for your company. You have a board meeting tomorrow in some cases, and you need help. Don't call me and apologize and then work that conversation into the strategy help you need for your brand.
0: Designated Black consultant for (laughs) everyone.
1: (laughs) Woke marketing. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that, Jason. It's so interesting, Kamala, when You asked that question, I had to really think back on who actually called me to check on me. And I have to say, and I know a lot of white people, very few. I can actually recall maybe two white people that called to check on me. I live in. A very diverse area. My neighbors didn't have a conversation with me. I am married to a white man, a very conscious white man. Most of his family didn't check up on me. And I know a lot of white people. So it was really interesting because I wasn't looking for it, but at a certain point, It became uncomfortable. Yeah. It was the elephant in in the room. Like, well, why are you not checking up on me? Yeah. And it made me feel something that I've always had travel with me throughout my entire life that I'm not black enough or that it doesn't affect me. And I grew up really well. I grew up very privileged. But I also grew up with very conscious parents that named their daughter Amani and my sister Safi, and who told us from as early as I can remember, they were preparing us probably for this day, that because of the way we grew up and the privilege that we had, it is our responsibility to pay it forward. And that work was always a part of our ecosystem, our family ecosystem. And it afforded me to be a a butterfly, a, a caterpillar, a chameleon, because I could bob and weave in all different types of social settings and be accepted. But I honestly was left with the reality that the perception that white people have of me is that I'm not affected, that I'm not like them. So I don't need to be checked up on. And as I started having conversations with people, speaking on panels about racism, about performative actions, about subconscious biases, I I shocked a lot of people that I was being so outspoken Mm. because I think they didn't think I... I don't know. I I don't know what they thought. Like, you feel it too? Yeah. Like, oh, I thought you were this or that or unaffected. Because, you know, Kamala, you know, I've, I'm the, I'm the first one. I've been the first one at every job I've had and every role I've had. So I know a lot of white people.
2: So I have to jump in. I have to jump in. So this is crazy, right? So I had a very similar, I don't I mean similar to you in terms of upbringing, but I grew up very diverse schools as a young kid, white high school, but very diverse friends, got to college and lived in both worlds, right? If anything, more worked with the white world in college. But, but I have to say, I had a, a completely different experience than what you had. Shout out my white people. <laughs> like People came out of the woodwork. People were like, yo, check it on you. Are you good? I'm so sorry about this. I feel for you, and and I felt a tremendous amount of not just love. I felt protected. I felt like they really were like, we got you, and it meant a lot to me. Now, what I said earlier, it didn't it didn't have any impact on the fight I had to go pick up, right? Because that's a different thing. But it was amazing to know, like these people thought of me, were in my corner, and offered to be useful. I didn't have a lot of opportunity to take them up on that because I chose personally to go in and really mentor and advise and work with Black folks and f- kind of figure out how to put a positive voice into this. But I was supported.
0: So oh, I'm kind of curious, actually, Jason, you just said you had all these people reach out and I, I did as well. So kind of one follow-up question that I have on that was like, had they been reaching out? in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and Mike Brown and Eric Garner and Sandra Bland, or was this a like, here's our introductory conversation about race in 2020.
2: Well, I think these are, the, these are people, look, I mean, if you look at my, th- so that's t- 20 years ago, friends, right? but if you look at the career friends you have working at places like Widen and Kennedy, Beats by Dre, these are very progressive places, right? And if not, Beats by Dre, our team was like very, very diverse, right? If not more black. And I think that all of those people were very active on their social channels every time something happened. But it was the tipping point of George Floyd where they actually reached out to me and where I felt a one-to-one. They sought me out to say, are you okay? Are are you good? Yeah. And I think that's a microcosm for what happened in this whole nation, right? Everyone was sort of keeping an eye on it and oh that's terrible and then they would get up and go to work the next day you know like and then George Floyd was the tipping point was like hang on I have to actually do something if this is going to change and sadly it's because it took an 8 minute long video you know it took something so unconscionable that you're like I have to now do something about this i think that no video that nothing would have happened it was the video
1: well like will smith said racism is nothing new right it's not like it just all of a sudden popped up the difference is is that it's being filmed yeah yeah and
0: it's and, it's and unavoidable it the
2: capacity of that film specifically right
0: because it's like that wasn't the first film that we've gotten right like like we've had films
2: but this was like i know you're filming me and i don't give damn. that's why this was so explosive this was like i will get away with it This man's life is not of value in this society. That's what that said by a police officer looking at a camera and not changing his actions. That's him saying, culturally, this is okay. That's why I think people freaked out.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking too about like, what was it about this moment? And I definitely think a lot of what you touched on is, is a big part of it. I think we also can't discount the elephant in the room of the pandemic, right? We're just home. We're just like we we actually cannot. There is no. You're like oh I'm you know what? I'm gonna go to a basketball game and forget about the. Ooh, I'm gonna go watch. No, you're not actually gonna do any of those things. You're just gonna sit here, and hear everybody on social media talk about how insane this is, and you're gonna watch this video again and again and again. Now, for me, this was such a weird summer, and a, this was a very weird part of the summer, because I've been talking about race very publicly for a long time. Right. For over seven years, I've been writing Atlantic length essays on my Facebook about race. Right. So I wasn't surprised that I got a lot of calls and texts because people know that I'm here for these issues and I've been here for these issues. But one in particular was from someone that I hadn't spoken to in literal years. And it was just out of the blue. It wasn't a text. It was actually a phone call. And already phone calls are always like, oh, wait, we're calling people now. Right. Right. What about a heads up text to the <laughs> 2020 for you, right? And and I could tell that she was calling from a genuine sense of wanting to express her sympathy for these most recent high profile murders of black people. But I will admit that I was a bit at a loss for words. I appreciated it just like you did, Jason, but I was also like, what is the part that I do in this change, right? Because, you know, I think part of the issue is that sometimes when these calls happen, especially in the context of a relationship that doesn't have a history of talking about race, it really can sometimes either be or at least feel like an emotional transfer of labor from a non-Black person who's really dismayed to a Black person who's already been carrying the burden. Because I'm a nice person. You sound devastated. Wait, I'm comforting you about how bad racism is.
1: Yeah, Kamala, that's my issue. I have such mixed emotions about it. Part of me didn't care that whether people reached out to me or not, didn't care. And the ones that did, I appreciated that more from them because it wasn't a transference of guilt. It was a genuine, almost like, it was such a conversation of, I've changed. I can no longer be silent because I understand being silent makes me complicit. It was such a the people approached me so differently. It was, it wasn't so much about me. Of course they were checking, you know, like, Hey, checking in on you, but it it became more about them talking about how they now look at things. One of my really good friends is married to a black woman and, you know, mixed race couples, you know, I went through it in my household it's a different strain on that relationship in a different way. No longer can you be the sympathizer. You need to be an active participant in this because you're married to a black woman. And it hit him in such a different way because the woman he's married to is very much like me, like, Oh, upwardly mobile, you know, very well off. It doesn't affect her like the others. And it was his awakening, but, but the conversation was very much about him, which I can appreciate. And the other conversations were very similar. So I, I don't know. I I just rather not get a phone call. I rather you educate yourself, become a part of the conversations, take action. I don't need you to call me because it's not, it's not. It's not helping unless you put some action behind it and unless you start recruiting your friends and having those conversations. My husband, he was at marches the whole nine because he's just conscious like that, but he has his Zoom friend group. They meet every Thursday on Zoom and a bunch of dudes and they talk. And he was forcing those conversations. His friends did not want to hear it. Because, it, you know, it's so easy to turn the blind eye when it doesn't affect you. And next thing I know, they got a book club going on and they're they're reading White Fragility together. And I'm like, but I didn't clap. You know what I mean? I was just like, cool, because you should be doing that. You know what I'm saying? And I'm proud of my husband to force the conversation. I mean, these are his childhood friends. They grew up on the east end of Long Island. like. There were no black people in that area, you know? <laughs> so very insular, very small town, very, you know, pretty affluent, et cetera. So they just wanted to carry on and have their beers and talk about sports and talk about skiing and talk about whatever. But he forced that conversation, which I was secretly really proud of, but also just like good. And I didn't make a big deal about it. I didn't make any hype or noise about it. I'm really on the fence about the phone calls and because the cynic in me wants to feel that it's performative.
2: But can I ask a question? Because yeah. we're using broad generalizations, right? Because there are degrees, family and friendship that are a huge scale. The people that you genuinely love and consider to be your friends, like your ride or dies, right? And those people call you and say, are you good? do you still feel that way? Like you'd rather like, I'm good. I don't need you to call me. Like that's the person that would call you. If you had gotten mugged, you know what I mean? Like they'd have been like, yo, are you good?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, those people are the ones I talk to regularly. This is not a special check-in. Right. It's not an, not an out of a blue phone call, but I've also had family members on my husband's side who did not call me. (laughs) I'm the only black person they know. Right, right, exactly. And they didn't I, call I mean me. it's funny that yeah.
2: Do you think that was out of discomfort? Do you think that was out of Sure
1: it was. Sure it was,
2: but that's that's still not okay for me. Because
1: I have to sit through a lot of things that are uncomfortable. Like it's it's you know, I think that the problem is I show up for everything for you. Cause it's the right thing to do, because we're supposed to be family. So why are you not showing up for me? And that could be applied, you know, Black folks, we're always tasked with rising above. Rising above. When they go low, we go high, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by us always having to rise above, we wash their sins because we're not holding them accountable. And that has to change. So me by saying, oh, no, it's okay, it's okay. They're off the hook. I literally gave them a pass. So they don't have to ever deal with it. But yet I'm left with it. I'm left with feeling bad for for something I didn't even do. Because I then absorbed their wrongdoing as my own. Like, don't even get me started. I'm going to talk about the Coopers. Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper. This, this man was minding his own business, and this woman meant to do him harm because she has been trained by society to know, and this is nothing new, this has been going on for decades. She's been trained to know that she just has to make a phone call to the police to cause this man harm harm, because he asked her to follow the law. And then what happens? The performative tears. Oh, the crying. Oh, the sorrow. Oh, oh, oh. Let me be very clear about this. You're not sorry. The tears are fake. You're only sorry because you got caught. I don't want tears. Don't cry to me. Don't cry to me about nothing. <laughs> I don't care if you're se- great. You have empathy towards what's happening to an underserved community into it. That's the, that's the first step. But th- white people are so used to copping out, whether it's tears, whether it's apologies that are empty. And we we have to stop giving them a way out. We have to stop saying, like I tell my husband all the time when he's done something and he'll apologize and I'm like, I don't accept your apology. Because that's my right. Right now, I don't accept your apology. You need to sit with this for a little bit and you need to understand the weight of it. Because the minute we give in, and we give in so quickly, so quickly, transference of guilt
0: can't happen anymore. It's so important, amani, like you know what, and I, it's funny because, as I was p- thinking about this conversation and and thinking about some of the inherent limits of sympathy, right? I think there are definitely people coming in who are like, "Well, what could be wrong with sympathy, right? Nothing is wrong with sympathy, but The way that you express it and what you do with it, and whether or not it actually drives you to make change, that's what we're talking about. I'm so glad that you talked about tears because I think this comes up a lot. We probably can't talk about sympathy and feelings when it comes to sort of aspiring allies without talking about tears, and in particular, white tears. So, this can be a very sensitive subject, and I actually want to make sure that we break it down. We need to talk about what we mean when we say, white tears and why it bothers so many people in the Black community when this happens. So I want to start with a definition and some context first, and then I'd love for us to dig into it a little bit deeper. So white tears, when someone says that phrase, this can be a reference to any point at which a white person would cry, usually in the context of a discussion about racism, especially when the racism is inherent in some situation that feels very close to them. Maybe you've just given them feedback on their own behavior, but it could also be just in the course of sharing the racism that you deal with every day at work or in a past encounter with the police or with some other authority figure. More recently, I've seen it really happen in the aftermath of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, when in the course of a discussion about police violence against Black people, a white person trying to express sympathy will dissolve into tears. I think it's important to note why this can be a really problematic display, because I don't think that it's obvious. First, White supremacy means that white feelings matter more. So if in a room of people of multiple races, a white person cries, especially a white woman, all of the room's resources are now going to rush towards that person and away from the black people who are likely the ones in need of the emotional support given the topic that you're discussing. It also has the impact of decentering Black people in the conversation, because now our attention is turned to how distressing it is for a white person to realize that unbeknownst to them, they have white privilege, and that the Black people who had been trying to tell them this for a long time were not just being mean. It usually can then devolve into tone policing. Did you say it the right way? Oh my gosh, look how bad this person feels. Now, these are important realizations for white people to make. But in the height of a national focus, finally, on the experiences of Black people, I'm not sure that the best use of your sympathy as an ally or an anti-racist is in the form of tears that end up taking the spotlight away from the people who need it the most and not actually getting to the point of taking action. Imani, you started us off talking about how these tears make you feel in that moment, right? Because it becomes not about you anymore. It's about what the other person is feeling, Jason. I don't know if you've witnessed this or seen it or have a thought on it, but I think it's worth like really digging into because sympathy and tears are connected, and I think that people don't understand how it can actually be adding more harm than good when this happens. Well,
2: well, first of all, I think the context and the definition and the the explanation that you've given is is Outstanding. I think it's a it's a very rational way to understand what this con what this conversation is really about. And I think to your point, I think the word you used most interestingly is resources. Right? Whether those resources are emotional resources, how we take care of the people who are actually the victims, whether that is financial resources, whether that's whatever the resources are, what these tears create is a false center of where the resources need to go or they taint the the decision of the distribution of the resources. And I think true allyship is put on a hard hat, grab a sledgehammer and let's go fix it. Let's go build it. Let's go do what needs to be done. And I, I think that's what this conversation ultimately is about. I think it's in human nature that you want people to know that you're in it. And you want people to know that you're trying to, and you're human too, and your emotions matter as well. And like, these are all human things. Like this is all, it's, it's okay. We're all humans. We've all been in this place. But if you really want to hit a higher level of making a difference and making a change, you got to check that shit at the door. And it's like, pick up a weapon. I don't mean that literally, but like pick up a tool and come help. You know what I mean? I lived in China when the Sichuan earthquake happened, that was a devastation in China. And I watched a country, the, the, the people doing the crying were the people who should have been crying. And the people lifting up that rubble were the people who shouldn't have been lifting up that rubble. And I was blown away by how that country instantly came together around that issue. And just, it's, it was time to go to work. And that country went to work. And it was like, I was so moved. And and say what you want about China, I lived there six and a half years. That was a moment I was like, wow, these people are a collective. They are a true collective.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Jason. That's amazing that you were there during that time because watching it was just, I mean, it was incredible to watch and to see everyone rally together. I just really wish that we had that sense of community here in, in the U.S. We probably would have had a better handle on COVID. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation. You know, Kamala, for me, I'm looking at it from a psychological perspective. I don't think people realize, or I know people don't realize, that not only are the resources being shifted in the wrong direction when these performative, I think it's performative, actions happen. But the psychological damage that it does to the inflicted, it's just reinforcing that you you don't really matter. It's not about you. When it should be about us, you know? So we're left with like, well, what just happened here? You know what I mean? Why am I being made to feel bad? Cause Karen's crying. And then if that keeps happening, which it does over time, it silences you. It really does because you're not going to have the result. Like, it's like, what's the point? And that's, that is systematic and that is generational. I remember my mom, who's 75, I took her for a Mother's Day vacation, a weekend, and we went to Palm Springs, and we checked into a hotel. I set up everything. It was so much fun. We had my spa day, the whole night. And when I was walking into the spa with my mom, there was something going wrong, like there was a mistake or something. I don't quite remember. All I remember is handling it. And the way I handled it, which to me is just normal, my mom actually, and it broke my heart. My mom actually said to me, I'm so proud of how you walk into places like you belong. And I looked at her. It was such, I mean, talk about stab in the heart moment because she comes from such a different generation where she had to step off the sidewalk and let the white person pass. And I looked at my my sweet little mama and I was like, mom, it's because we do belong here for no other reason than currency. I'm paying for this. Therefore, I want to be treated in this fashion. But that was the moment that I was like, oh man, this is so deep. This runs so, so deep and is transferred until you know better and you do better from one generation to the next generation subconsciously. So we see this continuing. Everyone, every Black person has experienced this at least once where you try to bring up an issue of race whether it happened to you or someone else, and somehow it becomes about something else, and then you're left with all these feelings of like what just happened wait, wait, what just happened here this is this is this is something that happened to me, so why am I being made to feel bad about it? Why is this girl over here crying like what why is why am I being made
0: to feel like it doesn't matter. Because before you know it, it's like it's like all of a sudden we're having a conversation about the tone in which you provided the feedback to the person. And they're like, you know what, we might need to rewrite our policies to make sure that we don't make people. And you're like, you're going to write a new policy about how to deliver feedback about race, but you're not going to write a policy about how to address racism. Cool. Right? More, more resources. More
1: resources. Roadblock, 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 over roadblock.
0: And and you know what I think is really interesting? So I read a really great essay this weekend that was about the connection between sympathy and solidarity, and in particular, the transition from being focused on sympathy to being focused on solidarity. I think many people mistake them as the same thing, right? I just said that I feel bad. Therefore, I'm in it with you. No, no, no. We need to go further than that. This is an essay by Austin Channing Brown, who's the author of the best selling book, I'm Still Here Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, which the title alone is a thesis and a sermon. So I think she defines the, the difference really well. She said, Sometimes the work of racial justice feels much like a well. There are some who, though sympathetic, will never go deeper than this. Their bucket will go down into the well of emotions and always come back up, filled only with sympathy. However, those that are really committed to solidarity are different. She says that their buckets are filled with more than just sympathy. It's filled with actions. It's filled with an ever-growing list of books and articles and podcasts. They will let down their bucket, and when it comes back, it will be filled with repentance and revelation. They will ask hard questions of people, of institutions, of groups that they love and respect. They will risk both the love and the respect because they will expect more. Mostly, they expect more from themselves. So Jason, I'd love to start with you. If you could talk a little bit about what it means to you when I say there's a difference between sympathy and true solidarity. How, how does that difference play out and how does it impact how you engage in your own relationships with people?
2: To me, it's a really, really simple equation. If sympathy is the destination, you've done something wrong. Sympathy is a stop on the way towards solidarity and action. If, if, if your train stops at sympathy, you're on the wrong train that simple. Sympathy is just the emotional response. That's all it is, right? It's it's your context relating to that context. And saying, "I understand that and I feel badly." If sympathy gets you to the point of absolving yourself, then sympathy is a bad thing, right? But if sympathy gets to the point where it motivates you to act, to change, to be a part of the answer to provide resources, then that gets to solidarity. That gets to where I think we need people to be. So I think it starts with just what we're doing right now, which is like, we have to call out that critical moment. We have to make sure everybody knows that we know that that's a critical moment. You either stop walking because you had a really good cry or you keep walking because that cry means something. That It means that things need to change. It means that there is work to be done. It means that you have to, that, that, that is not the end point. That's a starting point. That's what people need to
0: understand.
2: Because prior to sympathy, you just didn't give a shit.
0: <laughs> Correct. Which is a different problem. It
2: was our problem prior to sympathy. Yeah. As simply just the beginning of, of the we, right? Now it's not just black folks' problem. Now it's everybody's problem because we finally got some sympathy. It's like, okay, well, now let's start the action part. Now let's start actually solving it. And to me, that's the continuum that needs to be clarified very simply for anyone who wants to be an ally. They've got to understand that it's a starting point.
1: Agreed. Yeah. Amen.
0: There's levels to this. Imani?
1: Yeah, I agree with everything Jason said. I'm one of the founding members of Chief and it's such a great group and they're so conscious and The work that is done there is just so beneficial, but obviously during this time with George Floyd and just the countless murders, we had a lot of sessions about race and there was a lot of sympathy in the group. And I echoed pretty much what what Jason said. I appreciate sympathy because I think it's the start of awareness. But there will be those people that just think having the good cry or expressing sympathy checks a box for them. And so they're pretty much off the hook. But what I would tell people in the group that were, you could tell they were genuinely searching for ways to engage a conversation with their staff, with their companies. And I can appreciate that. And I said, you know, now you're taking your sympathy or empathy and making it actionable. But they were really nervous. And I said to them, just come from a place of honesty when you're talking to your teens. They already know you don't know, okay? So you don't have to pretend. You're not fooling anyone. They know that you already don't know. But that doesn't mean that you don't start the dialogue. Because if you don't have the conversation, then you're tone deaf and no one really wants to work for someone that's like that, okay? That doesn't even have like empathy or courage as leaders are supposed to have to begin the conversation. So they were like, well, how do I start? And I said, you start just like I said, hey guys, we need to have a conversation about what's going on in, the, in this country. I'm a white woman. I come from privilege. I understand that. And I don't have all the answers, but I want to start a dialogue now. I said, do you understand how people will lean into that? Because you're not trying to be a professor of race. You're just literally coming from an empathetic, sympathetic, whatever place, which is the starting point for change. And you're making your feelings actionable. It's all good as long as it's continued. Because I said to someone on a post on Instagram that I really hope six months from now, all of this fervor and passion is still at an all-time high because we've been here before and we've seen the results.
0: Mm-hmm. Listen, It's so good, Imani. You're exactly right. When people who are new to the conversation want to enter, it's this weird thing where they're psyching themselves out so much by all the things that they don't know as another excuse to not speak up. And so I love that you said that, like, we already know that you don't know. The issue at this point is if you don't speak up, now you're also communicating that you don't care. Not caring is actually a much bigger issue than not knowing, right? I think...
2: I'm i I'm very much a believer in in most things I do. It's like, how do you create things? Whether that is a piece of communication in the world, whether that's how you build a team, whatever. I always work through this concept of how am I creating the 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 greatest amount of good, right? How do how do we create movements? Whether that's how I inspire a team, how I put a message in the world, it's like we this thing needs to tip. And when I think about the amount of people that wanted to come into this conversation, but didn't have the tools and didn't know how I think about what they received when they got there, when they got to the, to the door, to knock on the knock on the black people door house. <laughs> it's like, hi, I want to help. I sympathize. I'm crying. Right. What, what do we owe to not to them, but to the tipping point, to the greater good, what do we owe as our response? Because even even the tone we have right now, if I'm the white person listening to this, I'm kind of like I'm kind of off it. I'm kind of like oh they're mad at me, they're angry. It's like no, we're trying to dialogue deeply, and these are are complicated issues, right? And what I've always tried to work through is like how do you t- teach people the way you want to be treated? So we're not gonna we're not gonna allow people to get a pass on this, but we also have to figure out how to bring people into the conversation so that. Want to be in the conversation, so they're not scared about not knowing how to be in the conversation. Agreed. Like, and, and I'll give you a perfect example. This happened recently. I'm gonna leave it at that. I was with someone that I know very well. We were joking back and forth doing coming to America lines, right? And this person was doing all the like black, black Eddie Murphy lines, <laughs> you know, like the barbershop and all that, right? And There were several others around. And at the end of that, I said, you know, in today's time, we're we're in such a moment. I was like, well, where there's some black folks that wouldn't be cool with the way you're quoting Eddie Murphy in coming to America. Cause it almost sounded like you're putting your own spin on on the spin that Eddie's putting on, like being black, right? And when I brought that up, the room stopped. This person left. Person said, I'm going to bed. Got up and rolled, right? And then the rest of that that door shut, and the rest of them turned and looked at me. There's like four or five other people and looked at me, like, look what you did. I said, that person's reaction is not my problem. (laughs) And I do not owe that person an apology. All I did was let that person know exactly what's really going on in this world right now.
1: Wait, so this person was white, obviously. Okay. And the people that were left at the party were all white all white
2: I was the only black person and i said you know other black folks may not t- i know you and we're cool and i and i know how much you love this movie but the way you're expressing it other folks might just think you're making fun of black folks and and i tried to bring it to the table very honestly and clearly and it was like oh here we go like he done ruined the night <laughs> We're in the room from some, some, from some, and we actually, the next morning made up and we were like, "Look, it's a, it's a shame that the state of the country is a place where we both love the same movie and I still have to give you the heads up that you might piss some people off the way you're loving this movie. That's another topic. But the fact of the matter is, that, and, and I'll sew this up, but just saying like, we do unfortunately have to decide if our objective is still the greater good, we got to figure out how to receive these people and, the, and how to give them the direction to turn that sympathy into action and to turn that into productivity.
0: You know what it makes me think of, Jason? And I know, Amani, I I could feel you from here. (laughs) (laughs) You know what it makes me think about? Because I think this is really important. So what I thought about when you were sharing that story is as a Black professional in a predominantly white industry... I have been to so many seminars and trainings about resilience, right? Apparently, what I need to do in the face of a racist workforce is to learn to be more resilient, right? <laughs> so I will learn how to approach my boss in the right way, show my ambition without being off-putting, tone down my tone of voice so that they're not intimidating, all of these things, right? Because my greater good is I want to get promoted. So what I would say to the white ally who's like, but I'm feeling really fragile and like it kind of hurt my feelings is maybe white people need to get together and start some courses on resilience. Because if what you want to do is actually dismantle racism, but you think that it can happen in a way that your personal feelings are never triggered, this is a false promise from the start. And I think the best service that we can do to aspiring allies and anti-racists is let them know that if you're living in a world that is centered on white supremacy and you have been socialized into it, there is zero chance that you personally will, will never be called out. Like I'm called out as a black person. I'm I see plenty of blind spots for myself where I'm like, you know what? I'm thinking I'm a white centered person myself. I'm an elitist person myself. I've talked about this even on my Facebook where it's like, There was this one message that came out this summer and it's brilliant. I think her name is Kimberly and she does a YouTube rant, if you will. And it's called Why We Can't Win, right? And this woman breaks down the history of oppression and the economic system, like Tulsa, like all the things. But she does it in a way that's like, there's tons of profanity. She is waving her hands everywhere. It's a whole thing, right? And I didn't share that video for weeks. I didn't even watch that video for weeks. I saw the freeze frame of the thumbnail and I was like, I'm probably not going to be here for this video. But you know what that was? That was my own Black respectability politics coming in between me and a message that needed to be shared. Now I could have said, what I need to do is reach out to Kimberly and say, if you want to deliver your message more effectively, you should do X, Y, and Z. But I was like, oh no, this is a Kamala needs to work on Kamala moment. Kimberly's fine. And what I would say to a white person who's triggered by this is maybe it's not on your black friends to figure out the right way to answer the door. Maybe it's on you to decide if the house you're actually trying to enter is one of racial equality, then it's like, yo, maybe I need to come with a different set of tools because I'm coming here with my feelings in my hand and hoping that someone's gonna carry it in a tray and maybe they're not gonna. I
2: agree with you. And I asked the question with respect of getting the greatest results, the, the, the highest number of results is why I asked that question because there are folks that we will lose along the way because of that very insight, which is.
1: If we lose them along the way, we never had them. So that's the reality. I I am tired of reshaping, remolding, thinking, rethinking, thinking one more time before I speak. What your friends did in that moment was the transference of guilt. They made it about you. Which you said nothing
2: wrong. Exactly. And and I was clear with them. And 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 I instantly said. I said that man's response is not my fault not or your my problem.
1: problem. Not your problem. Exactly. (laughs) To answer your question, Jason, the truth is the truth, is the truth, is the truth. And I'm not that person that yells at white people when they raise their hand and they want to talk. I'm not that person that's like, I shouldn't have to educate you. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe that there's power in numbers. And I do believe that I don't want to be yelled at. So I'm not going to yell at them. But let's not confuse being honest, transparent, authentic, and straight shooting with being rude or turning someone off. Yeah. If someone listens to this podcast and they're like, oh, God, they're angry. (laughs) I mean, I don't think anyone on this podcast is angry. We're just simply stating the facts. And the problem that white people have is that the facts aren't pretty. The facts aren't glossy and shiny. They're raw. They're painful. They're brutal. There's no way you can soft shoe that. And there's no way you should soft shoe that. People who talk about the Holocaust do not soft shoe the delivery of the message. That's a great point. And the Holocaust, and I have a lot of Jewish friends, that's a tragedy that didn't even happen on American soil. But we know more about the Holocaust growing up than we do about Black history. So the sins of the past, the sins of the present, they just simply are what they are. And we shouldn't have to modify how we express those sins that are of the past and the sins of today. But I am from the school of thought that if you want to come to the table, and we welcome you to the table, you need to be prepared to eat what is being served. And sometimes there's a little bit of bitter with the sweet. It's unfair of the disenfranchised and the underserved to have to go through hoops of fire to deliver a message that is right in front of us so that someone else doesn't get their feelings hurt. Because guess what? Our feelings have been hurt countless times and for generations because no one cared. So I do understand the yin to the yang. I understand the velvet glove approach. I get it. I've used it throughout my entire career. But it gets to a point when you start holding people accountable for their actions, for their thoughts, it is what it is. it, It can't be soft. It can't be a soft shoe. It just can't. And so either you come and put on your big girl and big boy panties and join us and have a real conversation that will make you feel uncomfortable because you were a participant directly or indirectly into how we got here, or you might just have to stay in the stands and talk about the play after it happened.
0: That's so good, Amani, because I think that what I would love, and I know that there are white people listening who are probably feeling like, I'm mad that black people even have to think about this, right? I'm looking for those white allies and aspiring anti-racists to be like, you know what? Black people shouldn't have to deliberate this much about the delivery because they will blame your tone on why they're mad, but actually what they're mad at is the content, What they're mad at is the truth, right? There's no version of it that you could have said that would have been any more palatable. And so what I would call our white allies and our white anti-racists listening to this to do is think about how you can take on some of this emotional labor yourself. So at the next call a black friend moment, call a white friend actually, and be like, what are we doing? So when people started calling me, I, I gave them assignments. I was like, thank you so much for calling me here's who I think you should call next. This has been such an incredible conversation. I feel like we could talk for another seven hours. But in lieu of that, I will just say, thank you both so, so much for joining me today. So many amazing, amazing gems. On this show, we try to end with an FAQ, frequent ally question. And I get this one a lot. So before we go, I'm wondering if you guys can just break off a little piece of the answer to this one. So what should an aspiring or even an actual ally or anti-racist who's committed to change do when they have friends who are on the total opposite end of the spectrum? I'm talking about card carrying, Fox News watching, All Lives Matter spouting, Trump supporters. A lot of my white and non-black friends say that they have these people in their lives and in their families. So I'm curious what you guys think. Do they keep trying to convince them? Do they just end the relationship or distance it? Do they ask a Black friend what to do? Now, don't fall for that decoy answer I just threw in. Not our problem. So I'd love to hear from you guys. What should they do?
2: When I think about things that have been done by our president that, that seem racist, and then I think about the many, many people that voted for our president Because they were blue-collar, Rust Belt, and they they believed this was another chance for me, right? And I'm like, you know what? You chose you. Cool. But when I think about what's happened since you chose you, and I think about how many people are still choosing themselves, even if it means choosing someone that is with somewhat of a pattern now showing that, Black people are not of interest or of concern. I then now take that personally. I start to then go, Well, then I don't matter to you if you are making choices about the future of this country that are choices that, that mean I don't matter and my people don't matter. And that's my struggle with having the political conversation. And that's why I avoid it because I think it's like you're just choosing to put you over. An Entire group of people, and 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 that's not what this country was built on, or (laughs) 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 that's not what the Constitution (laughs) was written about. Um, So when I think about it on a much more personal level, I'm at the point now where if those are your views, we are not cool. I'm not here to try to change you or educate you. You are my enemy because you are making choices. That involve the, the physical, emotional, financial harm of myself and my people and my family. I don't matter to you, therefore you do not matter to me. We are done here, and I feel very strongly. I
1: hear you, Jason, that part. For me, if you are living with or have friends that are opposed, not open to hearing an alternative point of view, Lacking empathy, which is the least common denominator as far as I'm concerned. You need to have empathy for for humanity, for people. Keep fighting the good fight. This isn't a journey for the weak of heart. I was just with my girlfriend who used to work for me. And she's now a big wig at a record label. And she's a white girl from South Philly. And she's super conscious. And she told me yesterday, she's very politically active, very outspoken. I mean, she's a true soldier for the cause. And she shared a story with me yesterday that and I've known her family forever. And she said, you know, Amani, you know my dad. And I'm like, yep. And she goes, you know me? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And she goes, the pandemic has done wonders for my family. And I said, "In what way?" She goes, "You know my dad, he's old school, staunch Republican, Trump supporter, doesn't get the whole Black Lives Matter's thing. But I keep on him. We fight, we yell, we argue." She goes, "I am relentless with this topic with him." And then she said, "This pandemic Being at home, him watching the 24 hour news cycle, different channels, not just Fox News, because she's in his ear, has turned him around. And he is more conscious and more aware and having conversations about Trump and all of the Black lives that have been taken unjustly at the hands of police brutality. And some people might be like, yay. But I do say, good, good job. Because he might influence his friends. And the domino effect begins. So stay on task. You might lose some friends here and there. They might go away for a while. And they might come back because they want to do better and be better. If you give up and just say, it's too hard. I don't want to lose my friends. What I don't want to lose. It's too much hostility in my household. Then you're part of the problem.
0: Yeah, I totally agree because I've been talking about race so publicly for so long, I've been able to see the slow change in some people that has taken years, right? So what I have done is I've never changed my message or my approach, right? I don't tailor it depending on who I'm speaking to. However, if we need to have a conversation about why Black Lives Matter, we can do that and you can have your feelings at the end of it And then, of course, there's going to come a certain point where it's like, you know, if I feel like I'm in a relationship where I can't share my feelings, that actually is indicative of a different problem in our relationship that will signal its end regardless of where we are on this particular topic. But I do think that, again, going back to resilience, we live in a society because of its white-centeredness has not cultivated any resilience or any strength of character amongst white people when it comes to talking about race. They don't have practice in it. And any conversation that doesn't go well feels like, you know what? Oh my God, it's too hard, it's terrible, right? My thing where I'm at right now is Black people have been in this. And if they want to opt out of these types of relationships, they can and they should. White people don't get to just opt out. I mean, you can, but the problem is not going to be solved. So I think that white people need to step up to the plate and grab their folks, right? If it's your dad, you probably can't sever that relationship. So you're going to need to continue bringing it up and they're going to get mad and they're going to get blah, 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 but you're planting seeds. Your objective is not about convincing them in this one conversation, right? That's not how evolution of beliefs work. It's steady, steady, steady over time. And so stay in it.
2: If, if I can jump on one last time on that, I answered that question from the perspective to your point of a, of, of, from my perspective of a black person.
0: Black people do not need to sign up for this work.
2: If this is advice to an ally, I completely agree with what you're saying. This is you need to keep going. Keep going and welcome to the struggle.
0: (laughs) Right? You're, You're getting a small taste of what it feels like. All right. Before we go, please tell the people where they can find you or your work. How can they follow you? On Instagram, I am
1: at intern two t o c m o, and as Kamala mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I have a podcast called No Need to Ask, and it's on all DSPs. So take a listen.
2: I am Jay White likes on Instagram, and I actually post a lot on LinkedIn as well. So that's kind of the Jay White likes is is me on any platform. <laughs>
0: All right. We will be linking to you when we post it. So don't worry. All right. So thank you guys so, so much for the gems today. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
2: Thank
0: Next time we will continue our journey down the funnel from sympathy to empathy. I'm really looking forward to this next one because empathy is what inspired me to put this journey together in the first place. I saw so many non-black and especially white people getting all the way to empathy and then no further. So in the next couple of episodes, we'll talk about the purpose of empathy and why, you guessed it, you can't stop there either. So again, I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and this is From Woke to Work. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at The k s one Subscribe now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila-Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at StudioPod. Edits were made by Nota Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time.